happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room episode number 177 for May 13th, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight as always, Good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you this evening? Good evening. I am fantastic, and I am ready for a good conversation. Man, we're just – how fortuitous it was that we started this 176 episodes ago plus, you know, because yeah. this is the highlight of my week, every week. Me too. So, and uh, it's always – you always encourage me to stay up on the reading, and I love – I'm excited to hear a bunch of the articles that you've got. So what are we going to do tonight? Are we going to talk about bears? I've got my, you know, Grand Teton bear here. I got the bear pillow. That's only because our son has now moved in next door and we had to relocate a lot of stuff. So there's actually a bunch of junk that is slightly off camera in here. But anyway, what, yeah, what are we going to do? You lost a little bit of space over the weekend, so uh, the friars are a little more packed in than they were before. So We gained some labor, you know. We moved some rocks <laughs> over the patio last night, and, you know. Nice. It's, yeah, it's nice to have everyone around the table again. We, we have no idea how long he'll be here, but since we've moved all his stuff and put it in a storage facility, I'm hoping it's more more than a week or so. But, yeah, it's uh, it's good. And you guys, we were talking before the show, we have our last uh, day next week, or, you know, next week's our last week of school. Uh, you all are as well, but you're, you're going to kick off some summer excitement, too. So you're you're not going to, uh, you know, take a two-month lazy uh, break from the speed of remote learning? No, sadly. And it's funny because before I took the my current job at the Montana State Virtual School, I used to kind of get bored in the summertime and, in fact, would take on a lot of extra projects and jobs because I'd get bored. And I will say it took a year or two, but I do miss the notion of, of a month or two, at least off in the summertime, to refresh and to reboot. But you are correct that uh, the virtual schooling marches on, and we do anticipate it, it serving an increased number of students this summer, um, you know, due to both the pandemic and also um, our program always increases the number of students we serve in each semester as we grow more popular in the state. But this is not about me. It's not about, well, it is about me and it's about you, but it's in context of this week's news. Uh, the EdTech Situation Room is a podcast that takes a look at headlines from across the techosphere, and we'll try to shoot them through an educational prism to try to provide some insight about what's going on technologically um, in and around schools. So this week we have articles on privacy, um, a repeat category from the last week, education in flux, uh, more security articles as they tend to be weekly uh, Google uh, articles, media literacy articles, a lot of interesting pieces there, um, connectivity articles, some post-COVID talk, and then, of course, our Geeks of the Week. So, Wes, is there a place you'd like for us to start uh, on this May 13th? Absolutely. So uh, let's start with an article about how college is apparently going to be transformed and never the same again because of our uh, covid 19 and coronavirus situation. Uh, so this, uh, you put a headline or a category of education in flux. And so this is an article from uh, the, the New York Mag Intelligencer on May 11th, and it's called The Coming Disruption to College. And 
Um, I'll, I'll give a shout out to an app I'm sure I've mentioned before, but called Nuzzle, which is a fantastic app that basically crowdsources the people you follow on Facebook and Twitter. There's so many different places to get information. And hey, you know, if like 15 people that you follow are saying this is a good article, wow, that, that's a way to oftentimes get some really good stuff. So anyway, that's how I found this article. And it is by a gentleman named James D. Walsh. And he is basically saying that, uh, this maybe isn't surprising from an economic standpoint, the big are going to get bigger and the small are going to have trouble because the schools that have lots of brain or a brand cachet, uh, Stanford, MIT, uh, I guess Cal, I don't know what, you know, that it's a, there, there's all these top, you know, 10, 50 lists or whatever of colleges. <clears throat> What, what he's saying is, and I totally agree with this part of it, because the last five years I've listened to more college counselors, thanks to our school, than I ever had previously. And, you know, the admission rates on the highly selective schools around the country are just crazy, right? They're only letting in, eight, you know, they, they rejected 85% of candidates. They rejected 87% of candidates, and that is kind of a sort of badge of honor to say, yes, and we just had more kids than ever that we rejected. So it's really, really difficult to get into Northwestern or Harvard or whatever. And of course, it's challenging to pay for it too. Uh, but what, uh, the, what he's basically projecting is that these top, top tier schools are, are partnering now with Apple, with Microsoft, with, with uh, Amazon, with different, you know, big tech firms and companies. They're scaling up their offerings. He says it's going to be good for students because more students are going to have access to high quality, these high quality professors and curriculum. Um, but it's really going to be challenging for second and third, what he calls second and third tier uh, colleges because uh, they're just going to have a more difficult time making an adjustment. And I think we all know from, you know, studying innovation and, and, watching change a lot of times uh, and this is called the innovators dilemma i think by clayton christensen you know uh, organizations have trouble letting go of existing models that are really profitable and so colleges and universities have have been on a gravy train for a, a long time really in terms of being able to increase their tuition and fees having more and more kids just come and come and and just being able to increase we saw that affected um in part because of some changes to immigration policy <clears throat> but now it's really, really dramatic. So I thought this was an interesting article from a crystal ball kind of prediction standpoint of uh, looking at higher education. So from your vantage point, Dr. Neifer, coming to us from Missoula, Montana, where oftentimes you're on the campus with more bandwidth than people can even dream of, <laughs> although I know you're, you're homebound now with slightly less. Where do you see higher ed going in the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months? Well, I, I guess I would start off with the notion that, um, and I, I'm, I want to read this article in detail because I, I'm not entirely certain if I buy the notion that getting access to top tier colleges, if more students attend top tier colleges because they perceive they can cram more people in because it's a more or an inexpensive distance learning model, if that makes much sense to me, because I think college is way more than content and it's way more than um, it's, it's way more than access to, to, you know, top tier professors. Um, I'm obviously graduated the University of Montana. University of Montana is a, 
um, is a level one research institution. So it's, it's, it's a respected university. I also went to a small private school for my undergraduate work. I went to Carroll College, which is located in Helena, Montana. That's often uh, times referred to as a well-regarded college, uh, private liberal arts college in the West, but. And a debate powerhouse, by the way. It, well, it, it I, well, yeah, actually a debate powerhouse. But the, uh, the piece that, that is important there for me is that, you know, I feel like I got a great education of both. And although those are definitely brand names, they're not top tier brand names. Right. Like um, and um, the 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 education I received there was way more than content and access to the grading from a professor. It was relationships I built it was activities I engaged in. Um, it was uh, uh, being exposed to different people in an interpersonal way. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I, you know, sometimes chagrined a little bit my undergraduate education being in a small college because I would look at large university catalogs and I was a political science and history guy um, in my undergraduate. And, you know, I didn't have a, a ton of elective opportunities, but the exchange of that was that I had uh, my senior year, I had classes that that averaged five kids apiece. I had one class where I was the only student in that class as a, as a college senior. It was me and the professor. I showed up the first day in the classroom. He handed me a stack of books and said the next meeting will be at a um, the next meeting will be at a, at a coffee shop. And for two and a half hours each week, I had a one on one class with a professor and like that. And and, and I have to say, right, um, I, I had a lot of great professors. Did you do the reading in that class? Uh, yeah, that, it's funny you should mention that because this particular professor was well known for mocking undergraduate students for not being super on top of the reading. It's what do we love. One of the reasons why I loved him is because he, he would tear into undergraduate students all the time. But um, yeah, you're damn right. I did my reading for, for that class because uh, it was just me and him. And I loved it that I'd bring a paper that I had wrote to, to our meeting and he would just grade it in front of me. And he says, oh, let's talk about page three. And it was it was something special. Right. And a lot of that's going to get lost. Right. But the last thing I want to happen in the next year and a half. Yeah. College is going to look very different this fall. Um, I know the Montana University System uh, uh, did announce in the last couple of weeks that they intend on having face to face uh, uh, collegiate services available this fall. But we'll keep things flexible to monitor the public health situation. But um, I have never really jumped on the college bad bandwagon. And it's not even the college bad bandwagon. It's that these big institutions that are expensive are somehow doing something wrong. Um, I agree that that we should be looking at college models. I think that there are a lot of ways that we could probably serve a, a, a diverse number of interests that the four-university system doesn't really serve right now. For example, I think a lot of four-year institutions could adopt more trade-related uh, classes and certificates, maybe look at something that's different than the four-year college degree as a means of providing new ways for people to get higher education. But I want like I don't see this situation as an opportunity for us to say that, well, for a year, students might be able to come on campus or might not be able to come on campus. Online courses are cheaper. By the way, they're only cheaper because you don't have the physical uh, uh, building involved. And to be honest, the physical building is a really great part about college. Right. Like I I I. Not sure if I would have really enjoyed my undergraduate as much if I wasn't on the beautiful Carroll College campus in, in Helena, Montana. And again, I paid retail for that, right? Like that's a, uh, you know, there is no state aid uh, available to private colleges. So the full price is what I paid for that. Luckily, I had opportunities like debate and academic scholarships, but um, that that's something to keep in mind. So 
Um, I will say one thing. I, I did catch one line in here in the interview that I think is right. Like if I, if I was giving advice to a student going to school next year, I'd take a gap year next year. I would wait a year, uh, see where things are going. If I were in the middle of my undergraduate education, I'd probably take the next year off. Uh, you probably aren't going to be able to get a job, which would be nice to do. Traveling is probably not going to be in, in, in the, uh, realms and also getting back to college is important. A lot of people that take a pause in the middle of college oftentimes go back. So I think you need to have a commitment to go back, but it might be a year to take a year off from, from the institution. Yeah. Well, a lot of thoughts there. Number one, there, there are uh, administrators in higher ed and, and others, you know, that just really salivate whenever the words distance learning are spoken because they think let's just pack in more and more kids and yeah. we'll spend the same because we're just going to hire one person, except they're going to teach 300 people. And th- there are just really different, you know, pedagogies and instructional interaction um, philosophies that uh, instructors have, that programs have. Uh, you know, I was the director of distance learning for, for five years at Texas Tech University. And one of the things which I was never successful in doing, and sometimes university faculty can be really kind of private about this, was to just have everyone post their syllabus online, uh, right. to, to be able to really give students an opportunity to, to get a sense of what they were going to get, because it was radically different as far as, you know, the level of individual attention and, and interaction and feedback that some uh, faculty gave their, their students. And then it was almost just like computer-aided instruction by AI with others, where it was a very you know, minimal amount, everything multiple choice, graded really quickly, just completely different experiences. Um, it is going to be very interesting to see, and something else this article points out, it kind of says that the 1% are going to be the kids that will get the, uh, the high you know, quality on-campus experience. Um, it's, you know, what is social distancing going to look like? There's a huge economic incentive for colleges as well as private schools to, you know, continue to demonstrate a value add and also to demonstrate that you should be paying the same amount. And the sense that I got from this article was he thought, he thinks that these universities are going to charge less. And so one of the things that's going to do is it's going to disrupt this, whatever you're going to call it, uh, a gravy train, an out-of-control debt machine. I mean, we have just been on a very bad trajectory for, you know, families and and society as a whole with respect to college debt. Right. And so uh, his projection is that this is also going to upend in a very needed way the situation where people are paying exorbitant, fee, you know, amounts for uh, a, a face-to-face on-campus experience. Right. And, um, you know, I I do I think it remains to be seen whether or not we're all going to be able to go back because there there are a number of folks that are saying this, you know, camps are opening up. Yeah, kids, come on back. Um, You know, and people are saying, yeah, we're going to we're going to we're going to be back. Um, But I think it really remains to be seen how all this is going to play out, because somehow I think people imagine either that. We just the, the the risk has passed and therefore it's not going to be a big deal uh, that much to social mix. Um, I don't right. I just I think that there's still so much unknown about it. But anyway, I thought right. it was it was a it was a good article and a good right. projection. And I definitely think I think I mentioned in the show last week. Shout out to Ashley Reed of the Oak Ridge School. She said like last week when we, we met, um, we've been in emergency remote learning. 
And what we need to be transitioning to is more non-emergency remote learning, right. but blended learning. And we're going to have to be yeah. flexible. We're going to have to be agile, uh, but we really need to consider, you know, how we're going to continue the blend and then how we're going to be able to uh, flex and adapt because, hey, there's going to be, even if you are going back face to face, some kids are going to have to quarantine. Some teachers are. Some people are going to get sick. Stuff's going to happen. So in a way, I think we're almost in a in kind of an easier situation now with all remote learning, uh, speaking of, of our school, because everybody's in that mode. We're looking at a mix. And I have tried uh, fairly unsuccessfully to teach live face-to-face students at the same time I was live streaming and trying to provide an instructional experience for students at a distance. And man, I got to tell you, it is just impossible to attend well, in my experience, when you're one person to the remote distance students. You just can't, your brain, it's just, it's too much. And so anyway, it's going to be very interesting. It's also going to be very taxing, I think, to a lot of school networks. I think we've got some digital divide articles to talk about tonight. Uh, The way in which this pandemic is highlighting the digital divide. And as we have a more blended experience where some teachers and students have gone back to schools and others have to remain remote, you know, I would wager most K-12 schools would not really be able to handle bandwidth-wise every single teacher simultaneously streaming their class, you know, up to the cloud. Um, That's just going to be way more upstream bandwidth than anybody ever thought you were going to need. So anyway, good article, and uh, I would love to hear other people's thoughts about that. I want to make one other comment about college education. The other factor that's going to be really complicated in the next, I would guess, one to five years is that one of the reasons why college has become way more expensive, and this is public institutions, is because state aid and state funded uh, portions of, of public education have gone down dramatically in the last 15 years. And um, and then the trend has actually been going longer than that, but it's been the most acute in the last 15 years. And unfortunately, I don't see that 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 uh, term or that uh, trend reversing uh, with state budgets that are going to be in pretty dire shape in the next uh, few years. And so that factor is also going to lead to some extremely tough choices in, in a, a very uh, tight market for higher education. Absolutely. All right. Where would you like to go next, sir? Well, let me talk about one other article here uh, that that was from last week's kind of education flux topic. And, and and the only reason why I mentioned this is because I, th- I think this is another conversation that we're going to have to have um, as we start to figure out what is more remote uh, learning look like. This is Recode on, on May 4th. And the, the article is paranoia about cheating is making online education terrible for everyone. And um and I have to say that that it's a little complicated for me because we are using one of the proctoring services that's mentioned in this article for a certain uh, part of our program, which is a mastery based program that does have some multiple choice assessments involved. But the, basically, the idea here is is actually uh, it, it's multiple pieces. But a lot of colleges that had to quickly shift into a new model this semester, this is also true of K-12 education, had to try to find a way to adapt to objective testing uh, that was somehow proctored or otherwise um, uh, meant to be uh, uh, done without the use of notes or or other resources, so a a secure test environment. 
This is also true of a lot of other uh, formal testing systems uh, for people that were like testing for credit. I've read a couple of references to colleges and high schools that had test for credit systems um, also um, uh, uh, complicated uh, uh, things when they weren't able to have face-to-face proctoring anymore. And this is another discussion we're going to have to have. I, for one, do not diminish the value of, of, of objective assessments for a lot of, of, of assessment of learning, right? I think the mistake we make is that when we talk about how better learning is higher up on Bloom's taxonomy, for, for example, uh, forget that that ta- taxonomy is a taxonomy for a reason. It's not that you skip to the top and that's the way it is, it's that you build progressively to the top until you can get to the highest order uh, level thinking that you can, which means you know the knowledge level first, the recall level first, and then you start heading up the ladder. And um, this is another discussion that I feel like that there's been, uh, this is particularly bad on Twitter and, and the limit of you know 200 something odd characters per tweet mean that we say things that, that it's hard to discuss in that environment, right, and have any sort of meaningful discussion. But, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of programs have adopted uh, virtual proctoring systems. Uh, they refer to it as surveillance systems, and I think you could define them that way in, in, a, in a, especially a discussion where you're trying to color the rhetoric a bit to make it uh, darker um, and, and more sinister. But these are the other discussions that we're going to have to have. And I would imagine a lot of schools and departments and individual teachers are going to have to talk about what does assessment look like. By the way, when you get rid of objective assessment or when you cast it away as as being not as meaningful, uh, the more non-objective assessment you have, the more teacher times it takes to be able to assess that meaningfully, that also means that you can't cram more kids in that environment if you're trying to, you know, increase uh, the value of a teacher by saying they can teach more students. Well, if objective assessment is not available, that's going to have to mean more time one-on-one with assessment. So there's probably a lot deeper of a discussion there, but I know articles like that have appeared across the media in the past six weeks or so. And actually, there's a good segue to the previous article about you know the future of college and what's going to happen, because it probably comes as no surprise to anyone listening to this it is incredibly time consuming to create uh good assessments and yeah. that's one of the reasons you know <clears throat> schools who have already adopted a comprehensive standardized you know student information system and learning management system which is compatible with you know textbooks and there's stuff that can plug in and you're not just having to make your homegrown assessments i mean again we've been in emergency remote learning so in a lot of cases a lot of teachers are having to create this stuff on their own. Uh, I think the that first article I mentioned talks about partnerships with the tech companies because if you unleash a lot of developer uh, potential wedded to, you know, good academician, psychometric, um, you know, assessment skills in terms of the ways that, that uh, assessments are built and created and also the ways that you can verify things. I definitely think the surveillance side of this, we've t- we talked about that a few weeks ago, I think, where, I mean, there's it, not even in just schools, but in, in businesses, there's scary stuff going on. Like they can tell whether or not you're paying attention in the Zoom conference and if your eyes, you know, are not focused there. And, you know, some of that stuff's happening in China and other places. I mean, just really um, pretty, you know, very Orwellian kinds of uh, systems that are are being used to try to make sure remote workers are working and, and I guess, paying attention and not, you know, just gaming all day. But um, I think, you know, these 
these issues, I think that all of this is just being accelerated so much faster than anybody would have ever predicted. And I think that as teachers, one of the things we need to be, you know, asking for and hopefully getting uh, from our institutions high quality curriculum that allows us to be able to, you know, not have to reinvent the wheel, creating assessments and, and delivering materials, um, you know, but ultimately what I think he want in terms of a high quality education is the ability to differentiate and to meet individual student needs. Uh, right. There's a lot yeah. of talk, you know, years past about MOOCs, massive online open courses, and those can be great in some contexts, but, you know, the, the completion rate is pretty low for those kinds right. of things. And when you study distance learning, as I know you have extensively, Jason, um, you know, it, it really is critical that you have some accountability in place and that there's someone helping, especially we're, we're talking about K-12 kids, but not even that, you know, whatever the age of the student, everybody's not just naturally taking to distance learning and wow, I can set my schedule and I can, you know, get this all done and I'm going to really just, you know, knock this out of the park because I'm so able to, you know, schedule myself with all the, all the time and deadlines and, and assignments. It really is a challenging, it's a good skill set. And I think we're right. going to, out of this with a lot of good skills, both for teachers and students. But I, I think that, you know, we, we've got to be rethinking assessment. And that is a really big conversation. In fact, it it's is really hard to do when you're in a, quote, normal environment, like in a university, you might have a semester or a year to put a course together and put it online versus saying, hey, guys, we're jumping off the 10 meter board today and, you know, start, you know, doing doing all your stuff and, and a lot of, a lot more accommodation level, um, you know, use of technology is, is happening there. And uh, so I, right. I, I think that we're we're going to obviously see vendors do a whole lot. And it's going to be interesting to see how they step up in, in this assessment world and, and hopefully not just putting us all into a Norwellian surveillance state. Right. You do remind me of one quick comment related to MOOCs. And MOOCs could be another whole show where we can talk about this. And as a matter of fact, this was a, a question I received on my, uh, my comprehensive exam uh, as part of my doctorate. But one thing I would remind everyone of, and I haven't seen it quite cre uh, creep up yet, but this notion that we could somehow – uh, you know, give, you know, uh, every student access to the best professors on earth and the content that, that, that they uh, that they put out and that that's a replacement for uh, higher education. Definitely go back and research the results of MOOCs, right, because they were supposed to basically eliminate college for the vast majority of people because it was a way to get access to education without uh, the expense of a professor. And you're right. The dismal uh, passage rates there. Um, in the same way that, you know, if if content alone was enough, we can hand infants a, a, an iPad with a YouTube app and, and, and pick them up 18 years later, ready to rock and roll. Education's more uh, human interactive than that. And I will also say uh, broadly from a distance education standpoint, from from our experience, at the Digital Academy, when. In, when the education is more interpersonal, when the teacher and student are connected, when students are connected to one another, when there is a community of practice working together for education, our outcomes increase uh, uh, in their effectiveness dramatically, right? But when it's student on their own or they're trying to navigate something by themselves or if they have no interest in, 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 in engaging in that environment, then outcomes uh, diminish in their effectiveness. So uh, I don't want to rant about that all night. So. <laughs> That's all right. Hey, I'm kind of in a ranty mood. The show's half over, and we've done two articles, ladies yep. and gentlemen. But hey, that's that's sometimes how we roll here on the EdTech Situation Room. Yep. 
Uh, so where shall we go next? Well, uh, Peggy, who's joined Peggy George, has joined us on the chat. I'll I'll put I tweeted this out, but she was in a great teachers uh, teaching teachers session tonight with Bud Hunt and others, and great resources about the Kid Writing Project from the National Writing Project, and then also. Um, she's got a link she shared about kids writing at home and in classrooms, the Philadelphia Writing Project. Love that. Uh, there's going to be a lot of parents and, well, parents look, looking for things for kids to do this summer. And, um, you know, we're, we're again, a week away from the end of school. And generally, it's, it's all excitement and enthusiasm. There's some sadness on the part of kids. But I think there's more genuine sadness this year, perhaps, than ever, because the limited interaction, which there has been, for instance, at our school with remote learning, you know, is about to really, you know, wind down. So, um, yeah, thanks for sharing that, Peggy. That is great. Uh, why don't we, uh, I want to do another digital divide article. We'll kind of take that, that theme. Uh, and you'd put a category down here under, uh, connectivity. Oh, and I didn't get the, the link. So, uh, this is an article entitled the differences between the haves and the have nots Hispanic students disproportionately lack internet access. And this is from the Denver post on April the 27th, and I'll get the link in here. And man, what they uh, found as they uh, took a look at their district was they had or have about 50,000 students that do not have home internet access. And of those, about 40,000 are Hispanic. And the uh, just extreme levels of digital divide are so stark here. And, you know, they, I guess they hadn't initially like Seattle, maybe in some other schools, Oklahoma city, I think gone to packets, but that was something that they were, you know, providing. But this is something that we, you know, we, we had a lot of enthusiasm. We had some enthusiasm and excitement over one laptop per child, right? We had the, the OLPC, OLPC project out of MIT, you know, those cute little green and white laptops and, you know, back in the early 2000s, we had the main learning technology initiative. We've had, a, you know, some really substantial things happen in pockets with one to one. But boy, do I ever sense now the imperative that we have not only for devices, but also for connectivity. But it goes beyond that, too. Right. Because if you're a single parent family in a single parent family uh, and, and uh, mom or dad is having to, you know, work all day long or work a couple jobs. I mean, the luxury of being able to work at home now have a paycheck coming in and then being able to offer some level of assistance to your kids, boy, that is absolutely not the norm in a heck of a lot of homes today. And so this Denver Post article really um, highlights that. And I think, I don't know where the, uh, I, it makes me want to check and see what we're doing here in Oklahoma. Um, because I mean, you know, People are talking about public television and, and there was, I just, I don't know. Even our, our largest school district, Oklahoma City, uh, I think their main central office has done a lot of the provision of packets and materials. And it's, it's just dramatically, it'll be interesting to see how do we gauge what's happening in terms of instruction in the fall and what students are actually being able to receive or participate in. Um, I, I don't know. That's going to be, that's going to be an interesting challenge because it just this, there's such stark differences uh, in access. And even if you have access, you know, how is it being used? What are the teachers doing, et cetera? But really good uh, Denver Post article. Did you want to pick up that other uh, connectivity uh, article that you put in there? 
Yeah, I've been involved in four discussions in the last seven days since we last talked um, about connectivity, particularly in rural areas. And, uh, you know, be clear, it's it's not a universal problem, right? Uh, some areas have better connectivity than others, but there have been a lot of discussions about new funding sources, and there's a new uh, House bill. It's called the HEROES bill. I believe this is uh, uh, supported by Democratic leadership in the House that has $5.5 billion for pandemic broadband funding. Um, and I do think there's going to be some efforts. I hope these are more than just temporary measures that we're looking at really trying to provide more opportunities for access, particularly for rural students. That's the, the, the group that I'm most concerned about. As I mentioned in the past, if you go to small towns in, let's say, northeastern Montana, um, you know, cell coverage is pretty decent in town. There's oftentimes one, sometimes two providers that provide some kind of broadband access in town. That ends a mile out of town, and then you go a mile off that road, which is where a lot of people have their their homes, their farms, their ranches, and then cell coverage uh, tends to be pretty sparse in those areas, too. And a lot of those folks have no access to broadband Internet access, and that is a a real problem, I think. And so uh, there is a a discussion going on uh, on my very long list of things I'd love to talk about uh, from a policy standpoint after the pandemic is over with is we got to get more people access to broadband internet. And yes, it's about education, but there's just so much in 2020 that you can't do if you don't have access to, to internet. It's pretty shocking that, that, that we still have so many Americans that don't have broadband access at home. But your comment about after the pandemic, I mean, this is going to be such a dial, you know, turn the dial, not flip the switch kind of thing. Um, it just, it seems like that it's a critical issue now for ordering groceries, for, for, you know, checking your sure. bank account, for doing your, you know, connecting with your, uh, your insurance companies. I just, yeah, it, it's something that needs to be an imperative. And, and I'll just do a shout out for anybody who, who knows, um, certainly ISTE and COSIN, but other organizations that are real advocates for, you know, confronting the digital divide, providing connectivity for students. We've got the the federal E-rate program, but it really does seem like we need a a multi-layered approach here that is not just focused on connectivity, but it is focused on end-user devices, right? And the idea that every student is going to need a device and a robust device, uh, a device that's going to last, you know, longer than just a few years, I would say. Uh, and so we're going to we're going to need vendors to step up to that. And um, it's great that we have so many powerful tools. But, yeah, I just everybody, I guess, is, you know, thinking about what what does it look like in the fall? What is the situation going to be? And it, I don't know that that schools and communities have done a lot in the in the intervening months since this started to really make it look much different as far as the kinds of connectivity options and the device options that students are going to have, you know, come August and September. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it- it's utility. I, there's just no other way we can look at this. It, 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 especially when you mention things like the delivery of groceries or applying for unemployment and benefits, right? That's those are minimum uh, uh, activities, right, in our world, and you need broadband to do it. And uh, this is no time for us to to leave that entirely to market-based solutions. We have to treat it like something that's a public utility for public good. Amen. Where to next?
Well, a couple of quick other articles that are related to that. Uh, this one I was kind of stunned about. Uh, this is from the BBC reported, although it was all over the media, that Twitter announced yesterday that basically their employees can work at home forever and ever and ever. Like you can just choose to be at home and that that's that, that for the whether the pandemic lets up in a month or not, uh, or if it's going to take a year or 18 months, that employees can just say, I'm done working at the physical uh, uh, plant. I'm going to be home forever. And um, interestingly enough, there's another interesting article uh, a couple of days earlier from The New York Times about how a lot of white collar companies and they're mentioning mostly tech and finance um, are really uh, uh, waiting it out that they will continue to push work at home options for their employees. And the reason why I think this is interesting is because uh, a couple of years back, and I guess uh, probably six or seven years back, when Melissa uh, Mayer took over Yahoo, uh, 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 which was kind of a sinking ship at the time she took it over, and then it continued to sink um, as water was coming over the sides of the boat, that um, one of the things that she changed when she got there was that she said the culture of work had been harmed by the fact that most of their employees were no longer working at the office. And she felt it was both a productivity and also a morale issue to bring people back into the Yahoo offices. Now, let's be clear about something. If we're talking about Silicon Valley companies, uh, there's a lot of great stuff about being in the physical workplace, right? Like, you know, unlimited cereal for all and a barista available 12 hours a day and yada, yada, yada. But the thing that's interesting about this for me is that I do think that there's going to be another probably pretty interesting conversation of whether or not it's worth it to have workplaces for people who are otherwise not needed to be in a physical location. And also, I am a bit of a productivity guru. Um, I like to read about productivity and, and engage in activities myself to make myself more productive. I will say I like being at work because I feel like it, it helps me create work-life balance, right? Because when I'm at work, for seven to nine hours a day, I need to be working, right? Like I need to focus on my job and the tasks there. But then when I go home at night and I'm in my home, I, I want to be working on my home stuff. I want to be with my wife. I want to be in my space. I want to be relaxing. I'll be engaging in my hobbies. And it's super interesting that now that we're starting to at least nibble around the edges of what post-COVID looks like, and I've seen hundreds of references to this, you know, is the modern office building dead? Because connectivity means that you can do an awful lot of those things from home. Now, Wes, uh, you're in a job that really couldn't stay at home permanently. I'm in a job that probably can't stay at home work permanently. So I think education, the discussion looks different. But if you were in a job that didn't have a, a face-to-face teaching presence, would you consider working at home basically forever? Yes, <laughs> we are. We are really, really enjoying uh, many, many aspects of remote learning. Um, it is just a huge blessing. I mean, here, you know, our son has graduated from college. Uh, we went up to Colorado and got him this last weekend and uh, drove back. Uh, it was, was, by the way, weird <clears throat> to be in different states. Colorado is much more strict than uh, Oklahoma and I think even Kansas in terms of their lockdown and restrictions and things. But anyway, it's, you know, it's just wonderful to be able to have lunch together and just to be living life together. Um, it's a, It's really kind of surreal. This is this is a very challenging time. I mean, we're just, we're in a, I guess, a small percentage, relatively speaking, across the globe of folks, like I said, who are getting a salary and who are able to, 
you know, have, have basically a very comfortable uh, existence. And what it has allowed us to do is really kind of just reflect on the things that we were doing before the lockdown and the ways that we were running around and the other kinds of stresses and activities that we had. And not to say that we don't have stresses. I mean, we do. There's there's anxiety, I think, every day and just the unknown. And there's a whole lot of layers to it. But it's really provided a great opportunity for us to think about um, the life that we want to lead. And, you know, it is exciting to think that there are opportunities like this that are going to require a pandemic in order to be able to, you know, do a lot of work from home and really do some high quality interactions. I think in the last week or so, I've been doing less coaching and well, one-on-ones. And I think there's just a lot of fatigue that set in with, with our teachers as, as well as with students. But and maybe the needs are a little bit less in terms of, you know, having been into this for a number of weeks. But, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm uh, you know, keeping my options open. But, of course, I, I love face-to-face. And I, I think, um, you know, blended learning is where we're going to continue to want to live. And hopefully we're going to be able to live better in face-to-face learning as well as blended learning because of these experiences that we've been having. Right. Well, and I would note one thing uh, as an example of, and I, I like working at home. I like working at work too. I a little secret. I like working as part of it. Right. But the one thing that, and, and I would be, I'm surprised at, at being able to say this in light of my situation. Um, I have a 10 minute commute to work every day. Right. It's not, a, it's not a huge commute by any stretch of the imagination. I grew up in a town where my dad had a three minute commute to work every day. So commute's not been a big deal, a big deal for me, but when you consider getting up and down to my office, in and out of my car, it's probably closer to 15 minutes, so it's a half an hour. I tell you, I try to not waste that half an hour that I've, I've gotten back in my life. It's 15 minutes more sleep in the morning. It's 15 minutes of chores at night. That little bit actually does make a huge difference. And those are the kind of conversations, especially if you're in an urban area and you're doing a 40-minute commute uh, one way each day or even 20 minutes each way, that makes a huge difference. And I am looking forward to those that study work culture and work life to see what is going to happen as we start to maybe reconsider some of those work environments and, and how people interact with one another. All right. Well, hey, I really want to talk about this pandemic um, alleged documentary. So I, I put five links under our media literacy category tonight under a subcategory for pandemic. And if you <clears throat> were with us last week or listened to the show, you know, it was just about an hour before the show that I saw someone on my Facebook feed uh, had shared this alleged documentary um, actually twice. They had shared it earlier in the day and then they were frustrated that <clears throat> it had been taken down by YouTube and, but they found another link, you know, and they were saying scary. Oh, and I'll say as a side note to this, that, man, it is, it is so difficult. I, I pitched that question to Jason last week about, well, how do you, you know, engage and interact with people who are sharing these kinds of things? And um, this actually, I won't go into the specific details, but it, it did not, it did not go well. Uh, and so anyway, I've got some resources that other, other people have written and then I've written as well. So first one was MIT Technology Review, May 7th. Facebook and YouTube are rushing to delete pandemic uh, conspiracy-laden video. <clears throat> the best linked article, and if you're going to – in a Probably people may have already seen this, or I don't know uh, where people's awareness of. Yeah, this is a crock. This the person who's you know pri- the primary expert here is 
was was an anti-vaxxer, you know, pseudoscientist that has been discredited. And there's just tons of juxtaposition of different conspiracy stuff that all you know weaves together. This is an upworthy article from May 7th. It's called That Plandemic Conspiracy Video Has Been Thoroughly Debunked. People stop pushing it on us. Lots of excellent links there including the third one I've got, which is by a doctor, David Gorski, on May 6th. Uh, Judy Mikovits, who's the alleged scientist in this supposed 20-minute trailer of a documentary, an anti-vax conspiracy theorist becomes a COVID-19 grifter. And that is a very long article with extensive debunking of, of the, the piece. And then the Atlantic article on May 9th um, is one that ties to my question to you last week, Jason. The title is, if someone shares the pandemic video, how should you respond? And they definitely are saying with empathy and, you know, not just directly confronting. Um, I wrote a post on May 9th uh, this past weekend, and I called it Plandemic Disinformation Teachable Moment During COVID-19. Um, there have been and will continue to be situations like this where a video, an article, it's probably more videos now because, hey, video is the pencil of the 21st century, don't you know? Um, it spreads virally, and it's crazy how fast these things spread and how much the social media platforms really struggle to keep up. Uh, we saw something kind of like this with the New Zealand um, you know, uh, shooting or, or whatever when, when, when that happened and things were live streamed, but uh, I just... I think this is an essential conversation for us to have today. Um, the same author for the New York Times who's done this series I mentioned, I think, last week called Rabbit Hole. I don't have the article in the show notes, but he just wrote a piece about um, you know, disinformation campaigns and vaccines. We don't even have vaccines yet for, for uh, neo-coronavirus, but we can anticipate, given everything that's happened with anti-vaxxer, you know, uh, uh, arguments and, and uh, videos and, and information <clears throat> that there's going to be a lot of pushback no matter, uh, you know, how many there are. And so essential stuff to talk to talk about. So, Jason, did you encounter the pandemic uh, link at all in your social media feeds? And what has been your interactions and experience with this topic in the last week? Well, I'm glad you highlighted this because I would have known what the heck people were talking about. But sure enough, I left our conversation last Wednesday night and then it popped up three times on my Facebook feed. And the uh, you, you'd asked me the question of how I would deal with it. And I think with empathy is a key piece of this um, and, and kind of understanding where people are coming from and that, you know, we are in a kind of a weird mix of a high information and low information environment kind of wrapped into ones. It's more complicated than, than either or model. But um, the answer is, is that I wasn't in a position for the three people that shared it, that I was close enough of a relationship with to have an honest conversation with about them, about checking sources there. And the complication we talked about last week, which is that a lot of places that I would trust check sources for some people who are, uh, so disengaged from, I think, kind of the mainstream of, of science and, and the media, uh, uh, it's, it's hard to have that conversation in a meaningful way unless it's, it's like a family member that you can call up and have that conversation on a telephone, right? Um, but what's interesting about that is that, um, you know, uh, that, that particular video has been, has been denounced, not just in mainstream media, but I've noticed some, uh, 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 some, 
a little more um, uh, right of center organizations have also jumped in now to criticize that particular video, which is not where I thought that would go. I thought this would actually get uh, bigger play in kind of the national um, uh, 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 right of center political press pr- press. Right. But um, yeah, I and I think it makes things really complicated because there are. I mean, it, 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 again, it's not hard to put together a documentary style video and anyone that has even pseudo credentials, I mean, can come off as an expert because there's just no barrier to publishing. There's no barrier to putting video out. And by the way, that that pandemic video keeps popping up on YouTube. I, I heard uh, a statistic. Uh, this was on a podcast a couple of days ago that that there are hundreds being re-uploaded every hour. That's probably up to thousands now. And so, you know, the, the amount of time that it takes to do that. And YouTube's got a pretty good system for identifying video too. So it's not like it's, um, it's not like they're having to go through and search for the term pandemic to get it, but pretty extraordinary stuff. And what's interesting is that we're in this day where if there is a unique word like that, which I don't know if the word pandemic was really, you know, a major Googleable thing before last Wednesday, um, You know, people can use that term in order to locate resources about it. Uh, You know, right before last week's show, I tried to search Google News to find some mainstream, you know, credible media sources about it. They weren't they hadn't written about it yet. Uh, You know, 24 hours, 48 hours later, they had. So I think the main thing this really drives home to me is how important media literacy is, how important it is that each of us cultivate and curate a set of trusted voices and trusted spaces where we're getting our information. Um, and where do we go when we want to check information? I know my daughter, yeah. our 10th grader was really rolling her eyes at me tonight. I don't remember exactly what she had said. It was something about coronavirus and whatever. And I was like, honey, what was your source? And she's like, don't tell me that dad. I'm like, honey, this is what we have to do. Otherwise we're just spreading gossip, you know? Um, so anyway, it just uh, drives drives that. I'm, I'm, I beat that drum, you know, each week, and probably, you know, we've lost thousands of uh, listeners as a result. But no, we haven't. I'm sure. We yeah. All right. Well, we've got about uh, ten more minutes to the top of the hour. What else would you like to do before uh, we we run out of time? Um, let's see. Going back up here to oh, a couple of security related items. Uh, Rico reported on May 11th that. Thunderbolt, which is a popular uh, um, a popular standard for passing um, high density data, and the most uh, uh, common Thunderbolt application is in in what's, what's a docking application. So, in other words, you have a laptop with a Thunderbolt port on it. You have a Thunderbolt cable that plugs into a docking station, so you can turn your laptop into a desktop. Um, it has a big security flaw, like big security flaw, and it's unlikely. Uh, it would be very difficult to you know target Target an individual using this particular flaw, but it, it impacts uh, uh, tons of devices, and um, a lot of modern high-end laptops utilize Thunderbolt ports. And so, something to keep an eye on. Uh, again, the risk of it becoming something uh, terrible for you individually is probably very low. But there's a lot of Thunderbolt devices out there, and it's not like pushing a software update. You have to push a firmware update, right? So the software on your hardware, and so that that's going to be a challenge, I think, to meet uh, the security risk of Thunderbolt, uh, the Thunderbolt flaw. And then um, uh, just an echo on something uh, that we talk about almost every week uh, in the podcast. Uh, we missed National Password Day last week, Wes. It's, I'm sorry we could have, you know. Okay 
toasted a couple of IPAs to the password, but I, I was entertained by the fact that a mainstream uh, news site like USA Today was saying you should have a unique password for every website you use. And that that goes well beyond, I think, what most mainstream news sites usually say in, in regards to um, you know, uh, having good passwords is important, but when USA Today is telling you that you have to have a unique, uh, a big password for every website, it's time to heed this device. And I don't know about US, but there's been a massive increase in um, uh, uh, email attacks. Uh, we've seen it in, in our program. A uh, particularly sketchy one came over about a week and a half ago that looked pretty legit. I knew it wasn't because of, of the context of the email, but was pretty legit looking that purported to be from our executive director uh, that went back to uh, a something like a weird Gmail account. But that kind of stuff is happening. And so, you know, time to be careful. Yeah, I was a tech director the last four years, and I'm recovering this year. And the number of phishing attacks, the number of actual situations with, you know, faculty and staff who in some cases made good decisions, in some cases did not, uh, and the the persistence and the, the cleverness of the social engineering, yeah. really, really scary. I do not miss uh, – being responsible for all of that at our school. Yeah. I'm, I'm thankful not to. Uh, and I picked up a security article as well that is really a sad one, but we've talked about Zoom bombing and Zoom security issues. And, you know, here we go. Oklahoma City University's virtual graduation ceremony disrupted by racist hacker. This was actually in Time Magazine on May 10th. And uh, Oklahoma City University, we, we, we uh, once a week are going out to, um, you know, get some food. And, and we actually picked up big truck tacos tonight down on 23rd street. So we drove by Oklahoma city university. Um, they were apparently using zoom and somehow or other, uh, an individual got on there and, you know, displayed some graffiti using the N word, uh, and, and racist and just, you know, said some terrible things and was very hurtful. And this was at the, the culminating event for these seniors who, you know, weren't able to have a face to face graduation and had to have a virtual graduation. So, uh, security is a serious thing. And obviously the, the folks there, um, had tried to do what they, uh, what they could, but um, wow, I thought that was just about as bad as it could get probably for a virtual, I mean, even worse than your, your live stream goes down or something. I mean, just, just really bad. Um, and so um, the, you know, article that you just mentioned in terms of uh, passwords, you know, applies as well as, as multi-factor, but some of these kinds of things really are platform issues with what we're seeing with zoom bombing and the ways that these programs are on the dark web that are, Helping people being being able to hijack events, and I don't know. It'd be, it'll be it would be interesting if anybody wants to follow up or could. You know, did they have a password on this conference? When you're in a Zoom call now, you can lock the conference. I mean, surely for a virtual graduation, they're live streaming it out to Facebook and YouTube Live. So there's yeah. really no reason at all not to have a locked conference, which would pre prevent anybody from you know being able to join your conference. And so anyway, because that is local, I don't know, maybe I'll be able to find out a little more information about it. But uh, we got to be careful out there, folks. And these tools that are available, I mean, if you're not using a password right now on whatever conferencing system you have, 
right now we're using Google Hangout Meets as our primary tool uh, at our middle school and, and for our high school. You have to have uh, an email account with our school, with our domain in order to join. Otherwise, there's a pop up that says, do you want to let so and so join? I have not read any articles at all about, you know, Hangout Meets being subject to these kinds of, of bad uh, hacks. And so passwords are important. The security tools that Zoom we've talked about have, has added are important. Once you have your call going, we're using Zoom on Friday, uh, Friday, uh, mornings for, for our men's group. And I'm, I'm sitting here going, I think I need to lock the room, right? It's a little button you click once you're there and everybody's connected, lock the room, you know, and then folks can't jump in. And I think you're at greater danger perhaps when you use a persistent link that stays the same, because here's the thing. Anytime someone's account gets hacked, if they have that email that has that join link, like that's probably something we need to think about as a security best practice for video conferencing is going to be a periodic refresh. It's, it's very convenient to say, here's the link guys, you're going to use this every week, but because of hacks, because of compromised accounts, uh, just like we've talked about needing to, at least on an annual basis, wipe your phone, erase your laptop, get your, get your, you know, data completely cleared off and reinstall it. Uh, I think the same thing may be true for video conferences. If you're using persistent links, you need to update those periodically. Yeah. By the way, best advice that you may have received on this podcast is from Wes that if you're, if you're just broadcasting something, right? If you just want people to watch and not interact directly, Send it over a, a, a live stream on YouTube or Facebook or one of hundreds of other uh, examples. Use StreamYard, right? Perhaps like, StreamYard. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we're doing right here. You know, like that's, that's important. And I've seen a lot of people treat Zoom like it was, uh, like it was a broadcast platform. And, and don't get me wrong, for small meetings or small broadcasts, that makes a lot of sense. But if you don't need people to participate, then don't, right? Like just utilize a, a more nuanced system where you're broadcasting that information out as opposed to, you know, having people who, who really just consuming the information have access to the media in that way. And, and to Peggy's point in the chat, um, no, the password is not a challenge because you don't need to give a password. Like that's the whole thing about a broadcast. You know, grandparents that were attending graduation aren't uh, getting to talk, you know, say hi. Uh, they, they could chat in and, and say something in a, in a text chat. But this is an important thing about understanding the platform. And, and so what Jason's saying is absolutely right. Um, you need to be broad using a broadcast platform rather than an interactive platform. Zoom and go to meeting and Hangout Meets and, and these tools are fantastic for interacting. And we really should be leveraging the interactive potential of these when we're teaching. But when we're doing an event like a broadcast, then you need to be using broadcast tools. So it's great to have a chat room and it's great to, to have that kind of a feedback. But um, in all cases, we need to consider uh, what is the appropriate tool for the context? Any yeah, other articles you'd like to pick up before we no, I think I'm, I'm good for this week. I will say, though, that next week we should uh, kind of jump back into privacy uh, questions because I do think there is an increased and ongoing and very nuanced discussion about exchanging your privacy for public health good. And I think that that's going to make other uh, privacy discussions more complicated. So that's something we can look forward to next week. Sounds good. Well, I'll Geek of the Week at first. Um, I've got a, a few. My first one is uh, Goose Chase, a wonderful, in fact, Peggy George, you have shared so many wonderful things over the years that have made a difference in my life. And Peggy shared Goose Chase uh, before 2017 <clears throat> when Shelly and I had 
the opportunity to go up to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and we did a goose chase up there for teachers that we were doing an iPad media camp. Uh, you can have a free upgrade to their first tier paid it premium account until September 1st. And I've got that link uh, in our, our Google Doc, and that'll be in the show notes. Uh, this is an amazing collection of tools. Misinformation Tools by Indiana University Obser- uh, Observatory on Social Media. And I've only started to dabble a little bit in these. So there's misinformation tools, and then there's what they call uh, oh-so-me tools. Uh, for instance, like trends, I use that one uh, to look at a hashtag and to study, you know, when did the, the pandemic hashtag, you know, peak and start to be used and things like that. So really amazing uh, hoaxy, bottometer, fakey, bot slayer, echo demo, bot electioneering volume, different tools for visualization, for analysis uh, with social media. Really amazing. And then the very last one is a free three-hour mini course, which I'm planning to take this summer, and I would encourage everybody to do. Uh, it is on the SIFT Media Literacy Framework, which I have given a shout-out to, thanks to um, uh, some of our, our fans of, of the show. Um, this is Mike Caulfield's project. Um, he has a whole website now, um, and this is where he's linked to this, but it's a starter course on SIFT, which is going to involve stopping, investigating the source, you know, giving further information, finding trusted coverage, tracing claims, quotes in media to their original context, that check your sources kind of thing. And it's a fantastic framework, and it's a free three-hour mini course. Excellent. And this week I've got yet another weekend geeky project for you that's a good distraction if you want something to do that, uh, you know, uh, kind of scratches um, your nerdy itch. This is a great tool for allowing you to install Android apps on your Windows or Mac platform. Um, it is a, uh, a program called BlueStacks, and I happen to quote a, a USA Today article here about it, but it essentially allows you to install an Android platform on your Mac or PC and then download apps from the Play Store from Google so that you can do things like play Android games on your PC or Mac. BlueStacks is the name of the software and description from USA Today. But this here is not anything about BlueStacks. It's a broader topic. We're the EdTech Situation Room, a once a week podcast where you can find out more about education's impact of various headlines in the technology news. Wes, where can people find you when you are not co-hosting the EdTech Situation Room? Hey, I'm W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. And my uh, media literacy curriculum for fifth and sixth graders, which will continue to grow in the ensuing months of the summer, is mdtech.cassidy.org. How about you, Jason? I am at Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. I blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education at blog.cc.org. And this podcast, The Edit Situation Room, is broadcast on Wednesday nights. We broadcast at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, somewhere in the middle of the night, UTC. If you don't want to listen live, although we encourage you, please drop in. Uh, say hi to the chat room and our chat room moderator, Peggy. Um, uh, if that is not in the cards for you, you can download us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, including Stitcher, uh, Playcast. Uh, downcast all the major platforms of, of, for podcasting and feature the situation room. You can go to YouTube and watch the archive video, or you can download tiny, tiny, tiny audio files at our website, edtechsr.com, where you can also check out all the links we talked about and many more we didn't. We hope to see you sometime live in the chat room. If not, please download us in the future. Thank you. Good evening. Good night.